How do you pronounce your last name? What's your guess? Rosen? Rosen? Perfect. Okay. Perfect. All right. Like Rosen oh. at the end. Awesome. I, I get called Rosin, which is a bag that's by the baseball mound. Right. Um, I get called Resin, Rosen, Re- Rosenberg. <laughs> Rosenberg. Rosenberg. They add some extra syllables on there, huh? I just add it on there. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, uh, you joining the podcast. Is there anything... Um, that's off topic that you don't want us to ask you about personally. Never, never. Okay, all right, cool. That's a good, good way to do things. Huh? Uh, <laughs> well, Mike, if, if you ask me something that's off topic, and I think I can't answer it, I'll just answer what I want to answer. We love it. That's, that's perfect. What, that's what we do too. <laughs> well, that's way to go. We appreciate I you. Wear my, I was going to wear my Dodgers twenty twenty uh, World Champion shirt, but. Decided that was pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, man. I would have, I would have fought you virtually for that. <laughs> I was surprised. I've I watched a couple of your podcasts, and you always had a uh, uh, the Dodger Stadium background, or you're on the beach in Hawaii. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're in a hotel room, or is that your office? No, this is my office. Okay, all right. Um, and I'm not in a hotel room in Hawaii. I'm, I'm looking out my back door. <laughs> In Hawaii. In Hawaii. Not in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> if I could swivel this around, you'd see that I have like every single baseball card from the 1959 Dodgers. Um, I've got all sorts of Dodger autographs and stuff that I've had over years. So, so you've been waiting a long time, huh? Uh, yeah. I, 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 don't, um, I don't miss a game, by the way. I watch every single game. Oh, you're a big fan. You never yeah. missed one. Not, well, last year I missed none. I mean, I counted as at least seeing three innings live. Mm. Um, this year I haven't missed any either. That's amazing. That's, That's great. kind of amazing. Yeah, he's, he's a he's a big fan. We appreciate you you joining, Mike. Um, how did you find his videos? So oddly enough, I was taking a, a we're we're taking uh, classes late in life, and I was taking a, a human systems engineering class, and the teacher referenced one of your videos, and I watched it, and ended up sending it to John. And I was like, we got to talk to this guy. You know, we we always talk about how uh, electronics and things are affecting our lives. And there was a Ted talk that you were talking and uh, just beautifully spoken. And we wanted to see if we can uh, get you on. So that's how we came about. It's uh, we, um, so I have children and I see like at the, I always say like I'm in a constant battle because I want to, let my kids use the technology because I want them to be familiar with it. And I don't want them to feel like we're shutting them out when their friends are all on the devices. But I also want them to grow up how we grew up going outside, getting sunlight, playing, being kids, but it's like a delicate balance. So when you were talking about how it is affecting our, our memory, um, our mood and our anxiety. I was obsessed. I, I've, I went down the wormhole on a lot of your videos. So I'm curious what the numbers are. The last video I watched, you said that uh, people in the high school range and in college check their phones about 75 times a day and they stay on there about 250 minutes a day. More, way more than that now. What is it at now? Um, I forget the exact numbers, but it's something like um, about a hundred times a day and about um, six hours.
plus. Oh my God, that's insane. So what is what is that doing to our brains and our our society long term? I mean, what is that ultimately going to do? Well, uh, there's a lot of concerns. Um, one is is that we have a short attention span, and the technology just makes us have a short attention span. I mean, it's, there's always something different. I mean, you watch a YouTube video on the side, there's all the videos that you should watch next. Um, and our attention span has dramatically decreased over the last uh, decade or so. All of us, not just, not just kids. I mean, for kids, I, I get a lot of concern about the fact that they are not, like you said, they're not going outside. They spend like a half hour a day exercising, doing things that they should do that would make them you know, better being outside. Um, but they also get hooked um, on whatever it is they're using. Um, and so my grandkids who are 10 and nine get, get hooked on um, iPads and gaming on iPads. And given the choice 24 seven, they would just have their iPads out 24 seven and they would be gaming. So whether their parents will set rules or not, or guidelines, we do when they're here. <laughs> so the guidelines are you, you can play, we'll, we'll negotiate the time. Usually we end up with 15 to 30 minutes or something like that, but we negotiate, let them feel like they want a little bit. And um, then when the alarm set goes off, they have two minutes to close down whatever, because I know you can't just close down in the middle of a game. You want to get to a place where, where you can restart some of the games. Um, and then they have to have, we, again, we negotiate how much time they have to have when we go outside or we talk or we're watching we're binge watching young Sheldon with them. So, um, you know, we do that. Anything, anything to get them off of the interactive technology, um, which more and more they play with their friends. Uh, and one of the crazy statistics um, is that 31.1% of teenagers will have an episode of an anxiety attack um, during their teen years. Wow. That's almost a third. Wow. That's, that just is very scary, quite honestly. Are we recording, by the way? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're recording. You should be. Yes. Yeah, no, we're, this is good. We like to... Yeah, yeah. We don't like to say, all right, now we're beginning. We yeah. like to just flow into from, it. From, yeah. a, from a psychological standpoint. <laughs> but I was going to say, before we get too far, could you kind of briefly mm -hmm. introduce yourself and, and what your background is, just so the viewers and listeners uh, can get a little bit of that? Sure. Um, my name is Larry Rosen. Sometimes I go by Dr. Rosen, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I go by dad, grandpa, whatever. Um, I am a retired uh, research psychologist. Um, I taught and did research for 45 years, and I still do research. I just don't teach anymore. Um, all of my work since the 80s has been on the psychological impact of technology, or what we call the psychology of technology. And um, we started 1983, I think, even before there were laptops, or even people thought about laptops um, let alone phones. And uh, we looked at what was called computer phobia back then, um, which is kind of funny to say. Um, but then that morphed into technophobia. We talked a lot about how adults couldn't figure out how to program their VCRs. So it just flashed 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock all the time, way back then. Um, and we've just kind of gone over the years to, to looking at more and more issues that surround technology. Um, I love to just keep studying different things. And so um, when my kids started playing video games, I studied video games. When I started doing online dating, I studied online dating. Um, so it just, it kind of goes along with my own personal beliefs 
that whatever is interesting to my kids must be interesting to everybody. Um, I am, um, what else do I say? I'm 72 um, and um, a, uh, a devout research scientist. Um, I look at the world through scientific lenses. I don't have any other choice. My undergraduate degree was in math. My graduate degree was in research psychology. Mm. Uh, I have no choice but to be a scientist. So I even look at, at uh, things like um, diseases or symptoms and things like that and look it up and look at, but when I look it up, I don't just look up what somebody says on some website. I go to Google Scholar and I start looking at the research. Mm. And um, I love I love reading research because most people, when they quote research in in um, magazines and newspapers and stuff, not they don't misquote them; they overquote them. They often will tell you a result that yeah, that's fine, but notice that there's only nine people that they studied, or <laughs> you know, notice that that uh, they did this supposed long-term study and it was only only two months. <laughs> so yeah. I'm a, I'm a scientific skeptic, I guess I would say. And, and then that's, I mean, that always fits into what I've been doing. And then over the time, um, starting in the eighties, I wrote seven books <clears throat> on different aspects of technology, um, ranging from, um, just generic, uh, techno stress, we call it way back then to how to parent kids in this sort of new generation of technology users, um, how to shape education to take advantage of it. Uh, how to look at distraction. That was our latest one, distraction. Um, how to look at psychological disorders that came from technology. So it's, it's been very, very interesting career. I've loved it. And I, I still think I have a lot to offer about it because I sort of try to keep up with the world. And it's easy when you have four kids and six grandkids ranging from, you know, from, I think my oldest son is uh, 47 today. Hmm. That's awesome. He is also a dog, diehard Dodger fan too. <laughs> I'm by choice, right? Yeah, by choice, yeah. All his choice. No, not by choice. Either <laughs> mine isn't either. My father grew up in Brooklyn. What choice did I have? Yeah. I'm curious what your studies and um, your research looked like in the '80s. What were you? Because I mean, t- I'm thinking there was radio, and then there was TV. So what? I mean, what was your research looking like back then? So the, if you remember how the 80s kind of evolved, the, the beginning of the 80s, we were still dealing with um, large computers behind closed doors and people with you know pencils sticking out of their pocket. And, mm. and, and, um, but shortly thereafter, we ended up getting, starting to get desktop computers. And if you remember that uh, Apple's ad for the Macintosh in 1984, um, that's kind of the mark of changing over and we did a lot of research back then, literally on computer phobia, how much anxiety people had about this change that was going to happen and where their anxiety was, what, what were they anxious about. We actually ran a clinic way back then on how to treat them to get rid of their anxiety, um, which, which was eye-opening and interesting because there were so many people who, even at that point, were stressed about the coming of technology. Um, they really didn't want it in their, in their classes. Um, I taught a class where the first day I said, oh, this is great. We're not going to have to do statistics um, by hand. You're going to come take over the computer center, show you how to punch cards. That's how old I am. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then we're going we're gonna to have the computer do all the statistics for you. And the first day of class, I had 30 students. And the second day, I had 15. 
Um, they just, and I asked them to, to a person, they were just, no, I don't want to do this. I'm a little afraid of these machines. And, and then it has kind of evolved. And then at the end of the eighties, by then it was like everywhere. You know, listen, listening to you talk, the anxiety of, you know, the, the anxiety that was felt then must've been more of, um, because I don't know that I don't know how to use this technology to where now the anxieties, um, I feel maybe maybe it's more of them needing the dopamine rush from the likes on social media, or if they're not getting enough likes, uh, or if they are not near their phone to check it. Like the anxiety is shifted to probably something that's a worse type of anxiety. Is that accurate, or what do you think? Yeah, it's funny. Way back when, when we started studying it, the anxiety was more about sort of societal issues what's society going to look like we're going to you know we had movies taking over computers taking over the world and um people were genuinely afraid of what was going to come in in the future now and i I look at now maybe stretching back to to 10 12 years ago um when when the iphones kind of rushed in and took over the world um and then everybody had phones and everybody had technology on them and the anxiety comes from a lot of different places. Uh, one place that's really obvious is social media. Um, uh, people um, behind a screen, people can say really nasty things, and they do. And they think just because they're behind a screen, this nice screen that's in front of me, that nobody knows who they are. They, they can sort of feel anonymous, but they're not really anonymous. I and mean, anybody can look them up and find out all about them if they want. And so people, people constantly are feeling upset and scared and worried about these people on social media. But then there's also this thing called fear of missing out, that if you're not there on social media, then you're going to miss out on stuff. And so that's just kind of the opposite look. So it's really, there's no main source of anxiety. I mean, there's even people who feel anxious about keeping up. You know, do I get the next phone? Do I get the, do I keep up with the technology? Do I keep trying every app that comes out? And that makes them anxious because then they figure, well, I gotta be doing this. I gotta be doing that. I gotta be doing this. I mean, and then, and then all the sorts of communication issues make people anxious. I love when people um, text somebody and then they look at the little dots at the bottom and sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait. And then they disappear. I go, Wait a minute. What? 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 Did, what, did the per- what was the person going to say? <laughs> you know, I want to hear it, even if it's bad. I want to hear it. And um, so, it's kind of a mishmash of everything you can think of. Um, obviously, video gaming um, has changed dramatically. My my grandsons, like I said, who are ten and nine, play almost always online with other people, or interesting enough, watch other people online playing online, which I find an interesting phenomenon. I used to think when I started, I used to think that's really weird. Why would you want to sit and watch somebody else playing a game? But then I realized that what they're doing is developing good strategies. They're figuring out things that this other person is showing them and they're using that to help them learn how to get deeper into the game. So anxiety is tricky, but I think it hits us all really hard and i think technology usually underlies what's going on it's amazing how you can learn things at a faster rate you know watching you know in that class i was talking about where we went over uh mirror neurons 
and uh, mm-hmm. not actually having to do something, but watching and you're developing skills by just watching. Uh, yeah, I, that you would have never thought that was a thing to watch people play video games because uh, it's like, I don't know, to me, it's like watching golf. It's not that interesting to me. But, um, you know, you mentioned... Well, yeah, paint dry. Exactly. <laughs> Some of the games I watch my buddy play or watch my buddy watch, I'm watching him watch something uh, like card games. And I'm like, how do you watch this for hours? Mm. But you mentioned uh, FOMO or fear of missing out. Was that a was that a thing in psychology before? And this is like the new term for an already developed thing. No, people, Sprint. people, I mean, yes, there were people who studied people who were concerned that they were missing out on things, but it really didn't hit until social media took off and social media created even even the beginning social media sites created this thing of if you weren't there you weren't period or if if you didn't if you were sharing something online with somebody and there was you didn't take a picture it didn't exist and so all of that really changed the the kind of zeitgeist of, of the world in terms of technology and what it did is it made everybody feel like they had to be there 24-7. And an interesting story, my, my youngest daughter um, and I went on a, on a car trip, mostly because she just had surgery and I wouldn't let her drive, so I took the car and drove. But one of the things that we did is, is we hiked up to someplace called Inspiration Point. I don't even remember, somewhere in the, in the upper west part of the country. And um, here we are, and she's on crutches, and she's going all the way up, and I'm going all the way up. We get to the top, and of course, inspiration point, obviously, is going to be inspiring, right? It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be interesting. Turned out there was a cell tower up there, and every single person except us were on their phones. Mm. They felt like they missed out on something that, I mean, took them 20 minutes to climb up there, and they missed out on 20 minutes worth of the world. That's that's insane. It's a a little frightening. That's scary. But but it's also... um, I find it that if you can figure out what's going wrong or you can figure out what is wrong, then it's easier to figure out what you can do about it. And I think a lot of it with kids is simply parenting. I mean, quite honestly, when I was a kid, I got stuck in front of the TV on Saturday mornings because my parents wanted to sleep in. Um, When my kids were kids, they got stuck in front of the TV every day in the morning because I wanted to sleep in. Now um, you just stick them in front of an iPad and it's different. If you think about it, watching TV is a very passive activity. Playing a game is a very active activity. And in general, you're building up this, this kind of feel, this internal feeling that if you're not on and you're not there all the time, that someone's missing you or you're missing out on something, or something's going on that you should have known about. Um, and now that there's just an explosion of social media sites, it's even worse. The average teenager has an active presence on six social media sites. And nice. by active presence, I mean they at least check it once a week. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, when we look at, um, I, did, I did a study with um, uh, some, some uh, millennials and teenagers both. And what I did is every, every week, um, I had them send in a screenshot of their seven day screen time on their iPhone. And then we literally hand looked at those and what they were doing and how many, you know, if you have iPhone, you know, that screen time shows you the app that you used and how many minutes you used it in the last week and what notifications you got and where they came from. 
what was the first app you looked at when you opened your phone, things like that. It gives you lots of information. Turns out that the majority of their time, both millennials and um, teens, is spent connecting. And number one, two, three, and four usually are iMessage. And then depending upon what the, the flavor is of the day, like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, they're all like numbers one, two, three, and four. And when you add it all up, that's really what they're doing is communicating. And, but they're not communicating face-to-face. I mean, even on Zoom, I can see your face is not, you know, it's not like a, it's perfect, but it's better than if you're playing a game and you don't see anybody's faces out there, you're still communicating, but you're missing out on all the cues. I mean, if I were talking to somebody on Zoom, um, I would miss out on the cues that they were showing me unless I had them huge on my screen. And I could really get into their face, you know, and peer at that. Yeah. But there's so many cues in communication that we that we don't get online, we don't get virtually, that it really messes up communication. Um, and I don't know if you're if a, you're a Key and Peele fan, but um, there was a great episode of miscommunication with text messages between them. And if you get a chance <laughs> to check it out on, on YouTube, it's just it, they're hysterical anyway. But it it just it just showed you how one little miscommunication can end up with somebody coming at you with a bat with nails in it. <laughs> that's, that's the ending result of all this. So it, it is about communication. And with communication, you've got so many ways to communicate. Of course, of course you're worried about missing out. I don't like the idea of fear of missing out. It just happened to be a great acronym that people made up. It's really anxiety about missing out, but AOMA doesn't sound very good. Um, FOMO sounds better. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I think we always had something like that. Like if you were uh, in a baseball league and you missed the game, it's like, man, I wish I was there. But it's like, you know, everybody knows about, there's so many events now, but, you know, back in the day it was, you know, baseball or going to the mall. And if you didn't go, you cry about it or whatever. But, um, you know, taking this class that I took and, and learning more about psychology, I'm really glad that I did because there's a lot of principles I can apply to parenting. And I know that you touched on a few, but what what are some things that you could, with what you know in the science and, and everything you've went over, what have you applied to your own parenting that you think uh, others should know? Um, so there's a lot, um, but it all boils down to par- good parenting is about setting limits and boundaries, period. End of discussion. Now, going diving deeper into that, it's about sen- setting up boundaries on behavior. Um, but it has to be a two-way street. So just to give you an example, um, my, one of my oldest grandson and his mom were, were having troubles and he was calling her names and she was upset. And so we sat down, the three of us, and we talked about what kind of names upset her the most. Called her some pretty nasty stuff too. Um, and we kind of, I listed them down and um, I asked her then, what's, what's the one that hurts you the most? And she pointed to one and I said, so if you were going to take away him being able to play on his iPad, which is what kind of the, kind of the, the typical way of, of controlling behavior, how, how long do you think it should be gone? And she, of course, said a day and he blanched and so we negotiated back and forth and we ended up in an hour. And then we negotiated the other words down to, to 20 minutes. Both were happy. Um, a, a week and a half later, it's all going great. 
That doesn't mean it's not going to fall apart, which it often does. But the idea of setting those clear limits says, I'm the parent. I set the limits. You follow the limits. You get good things happening to you. And it's, it's parenting, while parenting is difficult, I don't find that it's rocket science. Um, I find that parents um, do the wrong thing sometimes, like allowing their kids to have phones at dinner. Mm. Um, that should definitely be a time when for conversation. Um, allowing their kids to just play endlessly on games rather than sending them outside, do things, go play with your friends. Um, one of the other things that's, that's interesting is when you get down to the little kids, because I think this is where it starts, um, what you want to do is set very clear objectives. Like, for example, if I were working with a parent of an eight-year-old, I would say, well, what would you like that eight-year-old to do for you? Well, I want him to get up in the morning and get himself dressed. Okay, we write that down. Get up in the morning and get yourself dressed. I would like him to brush his teeth at night before he went to bed. Brush his teeth before he went to bed. And then you create this little chart. And I, I fondly remember my kids going through school and had star charts where they got stars for good behavior on, on the wall of the classroom. That's what this is, except you go buy some fancy little stars Every time they have a good behavior, you put a star on there or they put a star on there. They feel good, gave lots of positive comments. When they don't do something right, you don't yell at them because that's the natural thing is to yell at them and tell them, go back and brush your teeth, damn it. Um, you just say, hey, I'm sorry, you didn't brush your teeth this morning. Um, we'll do it. see if you can do it tomorrow. And what happens is when you set then consequences for those good behaviors, like, Five, if you get five stars, you can get X. Um, if you can get 10 stars, you get to buy 10 more minutes of game time today. A anything that you can figure out that, that they want, you can make kids do anything. Um, and you have strong behavior. I always had my kids on a star chart um, <laughs> when they were young. And what's fascinating is they, they really hardly ever turned them in for anything. What they did is collected them because they were fighting over who had the most stars. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's when it's powerful, though. You know that you know that you really got their attention. Yeah. Did you, w weird question, but did you ever experiment with shaping? You know, like, like shaping behavior. Yeah, like yeah. You, you know the old theory of like clicking something, or you know, more for animals. But I thought that was fascinating. I don't know how far you can go with shaping, but what did you do with that? Well, you know, with kids, you are kind of shaping their behavior. Um, you're kind of incrementally trying to get to a step where you, to a place where you want to be as a parent of a child. Um, and you can't just go from zero to a hundred immediately. So just like, just like uh, my daughter-in-law wanted uh, you know, a whole day lost. He wanted five minutes lost. <laughs> we shape that behavior into a position that made everybody happy and then watched his behavior. If his behavior was not going well, then you have to go back down and back off a little. But if his behavior is going the way you want it to go, then incrementally you increase it and you keep increasing it. So now you have where you, before you maybe you had to go, you know, get off the um, game in, in two minutes. Now you make it one minute, meaning what you want to shoot for is when I say time's up, when I go, the bells, alarms go off, time's up please check your computer off or your iPad or whatever you want. That's the goal 
is to get it to that. And you shape people because you can't just go from zero to hundred. It just doesn't work. Or in parenting, you can't go from hundred to zero, which is uh, when I was a kid, a uh, teenager, particularly, I was grounded for life. So many times I can't even remember. Now, obviously I'm standing here. I'm not grounded unless my mother's in the <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. But um, again, I was never grounded for life. Um, and it, it turned out to be kind of an idle threat. And I think a lot of what happens with parenting right now is that it's kind of a lot of idle threats because they don't know what to do. Um, and I've worked with parents of, of like five-year-olds up to parents of 80-year-olds. People, you know, just people who are just abusing their their technology use in a way that's that's hurting them and hurting the people around them. And the most common, of course, is working with teenagers because that's where it's really at right now. I uh, I have two. Um, I have a set of twins, a boy and a girl, um, and they're three. And I'm reading. I don't know if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson or not, uh, but I'm reading his book right now, The Twelve Rules to Success. Um, or to life. And you mentioned something that uh, correlates in the book of how you speak to your children instead of like uh, my words before I started reading this book, what, you know, if they're climbing on something, I said, Oh no, be, you know, don't fall that kind of thing. Like get off before you fall. And now I've been adjusting my words of, Hey, be careful up there. Um, watch out, watch your step while you're on this or something. Not, uh, not highlighting the negative, I guess, and I don't know, you know, if that what that does psychologically, but I, it, he said it works, so I wanted to start implementing it. So, what does that do to their brains, or what does that do long term for them? So, I would add one more thing to that. Okay, which is when they reach where they want to go, big applause, good job, great job. Do you need any help getting down? You okay with that? So, you on the one hand, you're not being you're not being punitive, mm. but you're being cautious, which is fine. Everybody should be cautious, I think. Um, but you're also being positive. And that's where things, I think parenting really is positive reinforcement. You reinforce the behaviors that you want. The other ones will either disappear because you don't reinforce them, or you have to punish them sometimes by taking away the iPad for 20 minutes. Mm. But I think the key component that parents don't do often enough is reinforcement. And reinforcement uh, doesn't have to be like, I mean, a lot of parents say, well, if you do, you know, if you do good on this test, I'll take you to Disneyland. No, that doesn't work. Big, big reinforcements don't work. The best reinforcements are cost nothing. Their time with the parent, their nice words, their hugs, all of those for kids and adults, quite honestly, are the best reinforcements. And so it doesn't cost you anything to do this. You just have to remember that anytime your kids do something great, or positive, something you like, you say, great job, or give them a hug or whatever. Like my grandkids get off the iPad now immediately, and I go and hug them both and say, God, you guys are great. Mm. I remember days when we used to have to fight over this. We don't have to fight anymore, guys. Hey, let's go out and throw the football around. That's awesome. What do you think about uh, negative reinforcement in the sense of not removing something, but more of a nagging? Because there is that one, but that one's kind of like the more negative way to do it but like yeah like kind of like you know you know what the nagging is like you know well you know you're just not going to do that you're just not going to do that and then they're going to want to do that what do you think that's a, a effective tool too and and when would you implement that one i think that honest to goodness there really are only two tools that i would use 
and one is positive reinforcement and one is punishment. (laughs) (laughs) The other is negative reinforcement. Uh, Extinction is another thing you can do with just letting things kind of, you know, ignoring it and letting it go away naturally. None of those work. Consequences. Good consequences make behavior go better. Bad consequences will make behavior go down. Mm. Period. Easy. Um, And when I work with parents, it's like I'll, I'll watch them for a while and I'll say, you know, that was a great time when you could have said, Jimmy, that was great that when I, you know, blah, 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 that you did this. Um, they just miss out on that. And part of it is, I think it, it being a parent for so many years and being a grandparent too, it's like when your kids are quiet and, and calm and doing, and doing things, doesn't matter to you as a parent what they're doing, you're happy they're quiet, meaning you can do what you want. You, you get free time for a while, which is why, of course, you can let kids play on an iPad forever because, it's, again, parental downtime and you know you get to work and the pandemic screwed that all up too with you know kids having to be at home and having the parent work at home it just messed everything up now i can see we're just starting to maybe turn a corner and get back to normal parenting but it's still i don't think it'll be back until the pandemic slows down if it ever does Mm. um but I, i really do honest to goodness think that if you just shower them with positive reinforcement when they do something positive and you mildly punish them when they do something that you don't want them to do, you'll have great kids in a month. <laughs> in a month. All right. I'd have kids first though. John has kids. I don't have kids yet, but I'm, I'm liking the tools and I'm, I'm learning to in the future implement. Um, you touched on COVID. I'm actually interested. Have you, have you done any research on the long-term effects of COVID and like moving schools totally, you know, digital and like work, people are starting to work from home. Have you looked at any of that long-term effects of how that's going to impact um, the world? I haven't looked personally at the long-term effects, but um, there is a decent amount of work starting to come out. And I say starting to, because in, in my field, um, you write up a journal article and you submit it. And then a year and a half or two years later, you might see it in print. Mm. Some of them put them online first. And so maybe in six months, you'll see it online. But then then the, the pandemic is in a totally different state anyway. So um, one of the things that, that I did do during the pandemic is to try to see if we could get kids to spend less time on their devices. Granted that they had to spend a certain amount of time for school, less time in general on their devices. And we were mostly working them with, with high school seniors and then millennials and like kind of 25-year-olds basically in that range. And what we did is we did two studies. The first one, I gave them a whole long list of things that they could do. I think there were 21 things they could do to help them wean themselves off, their, particularly off their phone. Um, like, for example, uh, since uh, social media is so big, one of them was take each of your social media icons, put it in a folder, move all those folders to another page, sprinkle them around, hide them. And then when you open your phone, I mean, I, I had people actually describe to me when they opened their phone what they saw. Almost everything was communication. I mean, they had TikTok on there, Instagram, Facebook, Messenger, uh, all of these things on the front page. And so how can you not go, oh, I'll tap that one. Ooh, I'll tap that one. But if you move them out, potentially 
you have to go search for them. And then maybe during that search, we'll go, oh, what do I really need to do this for? <laughs> um, we had a bunch of things help their attention, um, increase their attention and focus. Uh, we let them pick two, any two they wanted, and they did them for three weeks. And during the three weeks, we had them send in their, well, actually, we had a program that, that monitored how many times they unlocked their phone and how many minutes they spent on their phone. And if you can look at this, here's the baseline. Here's how they're doing without my intervention. Now I put in the strategies for three weeks, the baseline goes down a little, meaning they're checking in less often and they're spending less time. And at the end of the three weeks, it goes back up way above where it was before, <laughs> meaning wow. they're trying to catch up on it. So right. I thought, well, that's fine. We gave them too many choices. And so we just did two choices. You have to use these both. This is, there is no choice here. And we did it for six weeks, found exactly the same thing. During the six weeks, they reduced their behavior on their phone a bit. Um, but after the six weeks, it either reverted to norm, to their norm, or even got higher. So really, it's funny. I always think about this stuff, and I'm just as bad as anybody is, by the way. I, I, I don't even look when screen time tells me what my screen time was because it's baseball season and I'm always on the phone watching the game. <laughs> but, and that doesn't count. I can just crack those out, I think. But... but um, these devices are incredibly attractive. And in being attractive, two things can happen. One, you can get addicted to it, um, which you talked about dopamine before. That's really addiction is you keep having to do something more and more to get more and more dopamine to feel better. But you have to keep doing more and get more because dopamine kind of has a level effect. And if you don't get enough dopamine, then you don't feel like it was worth it. So you need to play longer if it's a game or you need to talk more online or whatever it is. Um, but then the other part is obsession. And I'm much more interested in obsession because obsession is an anxiety-based disorder. I mean, we all know what OCD is, right? Mm. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, obsession, both, both parts of those are anxiety-based. You become obsessed because there's anxiety chemicals in your body. And um, it's really interesting what you can find biochemically. And since you took this class, I'll tell you a little study that was done. I didn't do it. Somebody else, I forget who. But they went into a home that had a mother, a father, and a teenage child. That was it. So they found, I think, 50 or 60 groups. And at specific times, they had to take a swab, put it in their mouth, put it in a test tube, cover it up, date and time, stick it in the refrigerator. And they did that. And the important ones were the, the beginning of their day and what happened. So before they started this study, they, they had them fill out a couple of diaries of how much time they were spending on each website per day, what they were doing with their technology, you know, did they spend email, whatever. Um, and then what was interesting is they took a swab when they woke up immediately and they measured the level of cortisol. Cortisol is one of the main chemicals in the anxiety network. Um, and then 30 minutes later, they, they measured cortisol again. So what they were interested in doing was first seeing, did the cortisol jump? And of course it did. It did. But for moms, um, there was nothing that related, that correlated with that jump. For dads, it turned out the dads who used more email had a bigger rise in cortisol. Well, 
if you're a dad and you're in business, you probably get up in the morning and you first have to deal with all of the emails you got from your boss and everybody in your work and everything in your teens. This is your morning. So you get jump on for the teenager. The only correlation was those who had more time on social media, mm. the more time on social media, the more the cortisol increased over the 30 minute wake, wake up time. That's powerful. Yeah. No, that's it's actually frighteningly powerful. Yeah. That's scary. The iPhone came out in 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Is that right? Yeah. Something like that. There was a brief, there was a couple of years where there wasn't social media, like an app for social media. Right. Mm -hmm. So during that time, did we have high anxiety rates whenever, cause I remember when I, I got the Blackberry and I had to go to like www.com MySpace to log into MySpace on my phone. Mm -hmm. But I think it changed completely whenever we got the apps that we can download and it's just easily, easily, more, more easily accessible. Did it change from what it's not the phone's fault? Like I think the driver's social media, right? It's the main driver. Sure. All right. And I think what you, what you just said was perfect because when the iPhone came out, it came out slowly. Like most technologies, it kind of gets through into society slowly, but then it just boom took off. And in fact, the BlackBerry was never the same. I had a BlackBerry too. It's like, who needs this BlackBerry? I have to type things. Yeah, garbage. <laughs> I can catch things on the screen. Then yeah. what happened is, as the iPhone kind of took off, um, the world got murkier. And what really turned it around completely was MySpace. I don't know if you remember MySpace at the beginning, but MySpace was at its prime was adding 250,000 people a day, a day. <laughs> um, and everybody was on MySpace. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was fighting to be in the top eight. Hey, <laughs> why didn't you be in your top eight? So then they went to the top 16. Yeah. Wait a minute. Why did I get 15? Tell me, you know, why am I number 15 on your friends list? And, but it also was multimedia, and that's what attracted a lot of young people. It was all the music you could put play on there, the backgrounds you could do. When Facebook came out, Facebook looked like a stripped-down version of MySpace. Yeah. And everybody loved it because they didn't have to spend all this time waiting for music and all this stuff. They just got on, and the whole emphasis was on the wall, what was on the wall. Mm. And so you reacted to that. But And now um, we're kind of back to the multimedia part. Yep. We're back to we're back to a lot of videos. We're back to a lot of a lot of more um, less uh, English writing and more um, video audio um, experiences. I guess it's the right word. Um, and who knows where that's going? And I, I I don't do a lot of social media myself, but I like to lurk and watch. <laughs> and it 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 is interesting. Um, how quickly things take off if they have a unique something unique to add um like instagram is one of my favorite examples instagram took off because it was visual it was essentially pictures and that's why it took off because there wasn't a lot of pictures on facebook and there wasn't really anything else I and mean, all the myspace was gone face you know, friendster was gone all those early ones were gone and then as you started adding more um sophisticated social media you got into stories you got into videos you got into live streaming which is now incredibly popular live streaming means everybody's got a camera and everybody's watching everything and taking video of it but that's because you can and particularly through social media 
It's the best way to do it. So social media started this all and it is evolving it all too. There's really nothing else going on but, but social media, quite honestly. Yeah. I mean, yes, there are people who don't do social media at all. But if you look at the lump of people in the, in the years, like from 12 to 25 or 30 range, even longer, um, you see that primarily they're spending all their time on social media and primarily that's their focus. I forgot about the friend list on MySpace. Oh yeah, that was a big. That was like you like had a, a conversation with your friend. Like that's hey, a point of contention. Yeah. Hey, you know, like what's going on? Why am I two? <laughs> what, you know, why is Jimmy one? I thought that was kind of cool, and I thought it was really cool how we learned coding really early on to like make our pages and <laughs> to put a YouTube video up and then uh, do a questionnaire. Yeah. I thought it was more personal, but um, I wanted to circle back at that study you're talking about with the the swabs at certain times of the day. Mm-hmm. Um. With with social media, we get on at certain times. So, are you do you are you saying that if we don't get on at that certain time or it's nearing that certain time, the cortisol starts to starts to come upon? And or is it like whenever we're not getting dopamine, and we have such a a habit of being on social media that cortisol gets introduced? Or I think in this part, the dopamine doesn't doesn't really come into play. Okay, unless you're getting a lot of pleasure out of your communications and then it does play into it obviously because you need more and more online dating is my favorite example of that it's like (laughs) you go online and you you do it for a while and then you find it's really fun and enjoyable so you do more and get more dopamine but then you have to do it more and more and more and more and more and it gets crazy but um let's see if i can frame this right cortisol is a critical chemical. Um, when you wake up in the morning and you look outside and you see the sun and the blue skies, uh, it starts really, your body starts releasing cortisol and little amounts because that wakes you up. Cortisol is required. It wakes you up. As the day goes on, if, if you're not anxious at all, the cortisol stays at a, at a, a level that keeps you awake and, and, and focusing and stuff. Um, when you look at devices, um, they every single device now has is LED based, and they all emit light in all the whole spectrum. But particularly if you look at the light in the blue spectrum, and everybody thinks when you look at your phone that it's white, the background is white. It's not. It's a bluish white. If you look at blue light, what it does is it starts to shut down other systems and increase the cortisol. So when do we mostly look at our phones right in our face or our iPads right in our face? Well, at night, we're going to bed, right? Everybody takes their phone to bed. Everybody's you know, flipping through, looking at stuff, even if they're multitasking. So what the cortisol does, it, first of all, back up, the, the way you fall asleep is through melatonin. And the pineal gland starts leaking melatonin as you get to the end of your day slowly leaks it, slowly gets in until it builds up to enough melatonin that you get tired and go to sleep. Cortisol shuts that off and increases the, um, blue light shuts the, makes cortisol and cortisol shuts that off. Mm. So what's happening is you're, you're now messing with your sleep biochemically. And what's interesting to me about that is it doesn't necessarily mean you have trouble falling asleep. 
it means you have trouble getting good sleep. Uh, you wake up a lot. Uh, you have difficulty getting up in the morning because you didn't get good sleep. Good sleep means you got enough REM time, enough dreaming time in there, and that your brain went through its kind of cleansing functions while you're sleeping, which it does a lot, by the way. Your brain goes through all sorts of stuff at night while you're sleeping. It uh, it actually acts acts a little bit like a bidet um, <laughs> because when, during, during the day when you're when you're thinking and doing things. Your brain uses some neurons, but then there's junk. There's atoms that it throws out there and other junk and pieces. And if you let that stuff stay there, it turns into plaque, which is just a bunch of those squeezed together. And when you look at people who have Alzheimer's and, um, and you look at their brains, they have a lot of plaque. In. Mm. So what the brain does naturally is it, it literally takes spinal fluid while you're sleeping. It takes spinal fluid. It gets it up into your brain and kind of washes it out like a bidet and flushes it down into your system. If you don't get a good night's sleep, that doesn't happen. It doesn't get rid of all of them, and then they start turning into plaque, and then you have trouble thinking and remembering and, mm. and doing. And so it's critical, but technology just makes it horribly po- impossible to get a good night's sleep and to have all these processes go around in the back. For John's sake, uh, does the plaque go away if you catch up? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, Yes and no. <laughs> and the answer is, part, partially the answer is we really don't know because the way we know that plaque is a problem for Alzheimer's is people die and we dissect their brains and look at, at the plaque. We have yet to be able to look at it um, on, a, on a kind of continuous basis from when you're young, except now. There's a big project with thousands and thousands of subjects called the ABCD project. It's like 12 universities and like 30,000 subjects. And they started at 10, they took 10 year old kids, a couple started about four years ago, I think, took 10 year old kids. They brought them into the lab. They asked them a bunch of questions and a lot of questions about their technology use, how much they used it, how much time, what they used. And then every year they came back in, they gave them more paper and pencil stuff, but they also scanned their brains every year with an MRI. And what they found which is interesting. The first thing they found, and they're doing all sorts of interesting stuff, but when you looked at those 10-year-olds who spent more time with screens, with whatever kind of screens, that they showed a a thinning of the cortex. Mm. Now, the cortex naturally thins over time, but not at 11 years old. It thins over time as you get into like teenage years and later, and we don't really know what it means that it thins prematurely because it's kind of like the cortex of an 11-year-old now looks like the cortex of an 18-year-old. And what does that do in their brains? We don't know yet. That's why this study is still going on and will be going on for at least 10 more years. Um, so it's tricky. Uh, it, it, it's just tricky, <laughs> bottom line. In, in, a, in a speech you were doing, I recall you giving some tips and advice for, for ways to, uh, I guess, reset your brain if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So walking outside for five minutes, I think you said, um, Mm kind of doing some meditation, some deep breathing. I'm curious if you've looked at like sauna use and cold plunges for anything like resetting your brain. No, I've never seen that. No. Interesting. It's interesting thing. It is true that that hot water, for example, um, does reset your brain too. Mm. 
So taking a shower, for example, with hot water. We always say we get our best creative ideas in the shower. Well, we really do because it resets your brain and lets it kind of, it doesn't really reset it. It's like pushing a red button on the side of your head, but it just kind of resets everything the way it was before, before you got crazy and started doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and there's lots of ways and it doesn't take much time to reset your brain, but it has to be done often enough that it's, it gives your brain a chance. I don't know how much you know about that study you were telling us about, but um, are they trying to take away the use at times to see if that thinning starts to thicken? No, no, they're just, what they're doing, which I think is smart is they're just monitoring. It's basically an observational study over time. Okay. They may at some point start doing other things with it, but they haven't yet. And the reason is, is because they collect a lot of data, paper and pencil data, um, if you've ever had an MRI, that's not an easy thing to do. And scanning MRIs on kids, I mean, don't move. Okay, <laughs> I won't move. Um, it's, it's very time consuming. And so, they, like I said, they, I think they have 12 universities around the world doing this. And they're getting data, um, but slowly. And my suspicion is, is that some, they, they make the data available, by the way, to anybody who wants it. Um, and my suspicion is, is that people will start looking at that and see if they can detect any reasons why those, those kids who did what, what they were doing more of that caused it to thin um, and what they were doing less of. So I, I have high hopes that they'll come up with something good. But all of this is leading to the idea that you can now use very good analytical tools that aren't paper and pencil. And we use this device called a, a FNIR, a functional near-infrared spectroscopy. You wow. wrap around somebody's forehead, and it measures the blood flow in 16 areas in your forehead. And right behind your forehead is what's called the prefrontal cortex. And it's your decision maker, your attention focus, multitask focus, everything. And so it can tell you what's if somebody's focusing a lot now or if they're whatever, not what they're doing, but what their brain is doing. And it measures blood flow because blood brings oxygen and glucose to the neurons, which they need to live and to spark and to do things. Um, but we also use very simple gadgets, little things you can put on somebody's finger that measures their galvanic skin response. Galvanic skin response is just kind of sweat on your finger, mm. it's, but it's correlated highly with arousal. So the, the higher the galvanic skin response, the more aroused you are. And I'll give you an example of a, a we did this as a full study, but um, on my website, uh, right at the top, it says, watch, watch a 60 minutes piece with Anderson Cooper. So we brought Anderson Cooper into the lab and my colleague, Nancy Cheever did this study, which uh, then she published later on. Um, and we told him, we're going to sit you down at this, at this uh, screen and you're going to see a video and we're going to, we're going to test you on it when you're done. Simple, right? And we said, just, you know, just put your phone next to you over here. It's fine. And then we clipped on both heart rate and galvanic skin response. The heart rate is irrelevant. It never shows anything, but the galvanic skin response is interesting. So after a, a minute or two, Dr. Cheever would go, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, but your, your phone is interrupting these little things that are on your fingers. So we're just going to put it behind you on a table back here. It'll be fine. And then she texted him four times. Every time she texted him, galvanic skin response. Galvanic response, arousal. Wow. And we chatted afterwards and he was real honest with it. He said, yeah, I was worried about who was texting me. 
I was worried about whether it was important. I was missing out on something. I, I yes, I was anxious. Um, and then it's really funny when he interviewed me at some point, he um, was sitting in a chair and he put his phone down by his foot and he stopped and said, you know what? I don't, didn't hear what you just said because I was thinking about my phone down on my foot and wondering what I was missing out on. <laughs> no way. That's crazy. And then the interesting thing is what, um, Nancy brought in um, a, a journalist from Good Morning America, I think, and he brought two teenage girls with him. And the teenage girls, whereas the journalists spiked like this, the teenage girls spiked like this. Oh. Just obviously anxious. That's arousal, anxiety. It could be positive. I mean, arousal can be positive or negative, but mostly that's anxiety. And you just see how anxious people get if they can't touch their phone. They can't if they can't touch that phone right then, they get very anxious. And you see people going around patting their pocket. You ever see that? Oh, yeah. Just to make sure the phone's there. Mm-hmm. I you think, people, yeah, I do. People that sometimes. pull out their phone. You see people pull out their phone and look at it, thinking that they just got a text or something because it vibrated, but it didn't vibrate. It just they had the normal tingling in their leg, but they called it vibration. But it's really phantom. It's a phantom process. Okay, it's phantom vibration syndrome. But you see that often. So you see people actually, if you watch where people carry their phones. Um, when phones first started I, as an exercise in futility, I would have my students go out and watch where people had their phones. Just kind of observe for you know, 15 minutes, stand someplace and watch people go by. First of all, at the beginning, people weren't necessarily on their phones all the time, but their phone they could see that their phone, for women, it was mostly in their purse. And for guys, it was mostly in their pocket, um, sometimes put away in a backpack. As, as time went on, first of all, more people were on their phone until everybody was on their phone um, when they were watching. What was interesting is where they put their phone. Um, women started putting it in the bra, mm. top of their bra, so they could feel that vibration right there. Um, guys, people would hold their phone. And if you look around, most people now hold their phone no matter what they're doing. Their phone is in their hand all the time. That's nuts. Why is it? Because they want, they want to feel that vibration and immediately be able to grab it. And it takes too long to go into their pocket and pick it up. And it's like, they just want that immediacy. And, and that's, that's the lethality of all the technology because it's, it's not designed to do this to us, but it is doing it to us. And it's not the technology. It's us. We're doing it to ourselves. Mm. And somehow we have to wean ourselves off of this. And when you asked about the ways to calm or reset your brain, one of the things that I really like to do is to help people increase their focus time, which is kind of a way of resetting your brain. And I teach them something called a tech break. Um, so if, for example, um, it's a teenager and they're studying uh, biology and they're, they're supposed to read this page and answer some questions, what I will have them do is, is set their alarm for one minute, look at anything on their screens. They have, I have multiple screens here. So anything on their screens, on their phones, on their iPad, after one minute, get rid of everything that they don't need. So shut it down if it's on a computer. Don't minimize it because it's still sitting down there at the bottom yelling at you when the new message comes up. Um, flick off all the apps on your phone. Set your phone for 15 minutes, the alarm for 15 minutes. Turn it to silent. Turn it upside down and put it right in front of you. Now, why put it close? I mean, people... People always say, why can't you just like put it in the other room? Won't it, won't it be fine? No, out of sight where the phone is not out of mind. They're thinking about it all the time when it's not there. Hmm. I mean, we've got studies and studies to show that. But um, 
it's in front of you to remind your brain that in 15 minutes or less, you will be able to look at whatever you want. Alarm goes off in 15 minutes. You set it for one minute. Look at whatever you want for one minute. It turns out it's enough time to return a bunch of text messages to check a couple social media sites. Then again, 15 minutes, one minute, 15 minutes, one minute. When the 15 minute bell rings and you go, wait, 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 I got to finish this page. I want to finish this. Now change it to 20 minutes and then 25 and then 30. And if I can get you up to a short break, one to two minutes before and 30 minutes of focus and one to two minutes after I've won because now you have a 30 minute focus, which is pretty impressive in our day and age. Yeah. In our day and age. Yeah. <laughs> Works incredibly well, but you also have to tell everybody else that you're doing this because we didn't, when I first started doing this, I didn't say that. And then people were going, well, it would work fine if people just didn't keep texting me and wondering why I'm not picking up my phone and then start yelling at me because I'm ignoring them. So you have to tell all your friends, look, I'm trying this thing to increase my focus. I'll get back to you within a half hour. That's good. Yeah, you're doing a lot it of does, stuff. It does really work. And by the way, you can do it at the dinner table too. Yeah. Everybody put their phone, check everything, put their phones away. Um, and 30 minutes, give them a two, three, four minute tech break. If you're watching a TV show with the kids, pause it, do the same thing. Because otherwise their brain's always thinking about where their phone is and what's on it. So interesting. And and it's good that we have these tools so we can separate from technology. But when I want to get your opinion about this, uh, you know, we're getting into the age where uh, Neuralink might be a thing and there's no separation anymore and you're combined with technology. What are your thoughts on Neuralink and the fact that we could always be online and you don't have the separation of man and device? My honest opinion is it, it, that will be almost like the end of the world mm. because the most important thing that makes us human is communication. And if we're constantly on there, we're getting overloaded with communication. It's just, I mean, if, if, if I had my brain have a device implanted in there that had the internet on it all the time, um, I would get crazy after a day because I mean, I get a hundred emails a day. And so they'd be popping into my head all the time. Now I just check my phone often anyway, but nonetheless, they'd be coming instantly. Boom, boom, boom. And that, that has to be disruptive, first of all, but also just anxiety provoking beyond belief. <clears throat> what, the, what is that? What is that? And then you flick something in your brain and it reads the message to you. Um, and then you just want more. And then you got this problem of how do you disconnect from? And in essence, if that's the way the world goes, I don't see how we'll ever disconnect from it because it's ubiquitous thing. It's implanted essentially in your brain. Hmm. And there's some good things you can implant in your brain, but not that. Not, not necessarily your phone. Yeah. Um, another topic, you know, like we're talking about technology, another byproduct of technology and i don't know if you've done any research on it but um you know like blue light what you were talking about earlier there's like blue might blue light emitting glasses that you can kind of combat the blue light and stop those uh, cortisol um effects but um a lot a, a big thing that people are getting into is uh, emf protection like uh in their rooms their clothes trying to get away from the signals from electronics um what do you think about that? Do you think that's all hocus pocus or? 
You know, over the years, it's funny because I was trying to think when you were when you bringing this up, but I think it was about 20 years ago that there was a big scare that holding your phone next to your ear was going to give you a brain tumor because a couple people got brain tumors. Well, they've studied that over decades. Not true. You don't need to put tinfoil all over yourself. You don't need to get a Faraday box to put all your technology in so it doesn't leak out and get at you. Um, yes, we are all part of a big experiment, but it has nothing to do with having your phone there. I mean, if, if you think about it, if there's somebody in this next room and they text me and then they're talking on the phone to other people and they're texting other people, all that just flies through the air. I mean, how does it get from place point one to point two? It flies through the air essentially. And so you're constantly being bartered by electromagnetic radiation, constantly. I mean, if, if you can imagine this, if you're sitting in a, say, in a classroom or a meeting or anything, and everybody's got their phone going all at the same time, basically, if you could put on glasses that just showed you where all the, the transmissions were, mm. it would be black because it would just cover everything. So right in the middle, and I've said this many times over the years, we're in the middle of a, of a weird uh, global experiment. We have no idea what it's going to do. We're pretty sure that it's not going to cause brain tumors. Pretty sure, but we're never 100% sure. Um, but we don't know if, for example, it's going to change the biochemistry of our brain over time. Um, it certainly seems like with the kids in the ABCD study, it's doing something, but it's not the EMF. It's the overuse, but then you can kind of infer that it might be the electromagnetic radiation. Bottom line, uh, we're not going to know for another 50 years. I mean, because really people have been carrying their phone around for about 12 years, really. I mean, full-time, 24-7, 365. Um, and that's not long enough to do a study, a good study looking at um, environmental effects. Besides which, there's so many other effects that could cause this stuff. I mean, chemicals in the food you eat and chemicals in the grass that you mow. And there's, there's all this stuff out there. How do you disentangle um, what's what's due to the electromagnetic frequencies and what's due to other stuff. You can't, it's very difficult. Same thing. I've, I've Parkinson's disease and uh, I have some weird Parkinson's symptoms that are cognitive that are in my brain, like forgetting things, not remembering what walking downstairs, not remembering why I'm, what I'm there for. Um, but is that aging or is that Parkinson's? Hmm. I don't know. Probably both but it's so hard to disentangle it. I can't I mean, I can't just look at research on me as a Parkinson's patient and say, well, I'm going to go without my phones for a while and see if I get better. It, that's not going to work. So it, there's always alternative explanations for all of this. And there's nothing about technology that I've ever seen that is hundred percent proven shown. Um, they've tried. I mean, there's some pretty close literature on, gaming and the effects it has on the brain um but still not 100 percent. still fight about it all the time we just don't know i mean we're living in a grand experiment and we're it we're the subjects we're the mice in there the aliens are are rolling over us yeah <laughs> i think we are the aliens unfortunately <laughs> oh man the, the yeah you were talking about the the brain tumor uh uh, theory in the beginning and now it's like um, everybody's afraid of 5g because of it's a different frequency that we're not 
used to using, and I think it, what, I don't know if you know, there's, it's a frequency that's related to something else. I think that was what the scare was. It was, I think there's some research on it that, that, that it's used in medical stuff. Okay. Oh yeah. It can cause some medical problems Hmm. um, from, they found a few. It's, it's still, I, I cringe whenever I see people quote stuff like that, but because it's, very small studies and very wide conclusions. I I have this theory that like um, social media technology in general is making us more uh, dumber in a way to do things. I've said this a hundred times on the podcast, but my, your generation, my dad's generation, you know, older folks, they knew how to do stuff manually with their hands and fix stuff. And if the world were to come to an end and we, we didn't have technology, no one would know how to do anything to actually sur- survive long-term. You know, you mean because the answer to any, any question of how you do something is Google it. Right. Yeah. And, and There's a YouTube video for that. And men are getting a little more feminized today, spending more time inside on their phone, not doing, you know, using air quotes here, but doing manly stuff. Um, I feel uh, that's my like theory. What do you think about that at all? Um, with us not being uh, as manual intentioned as we were back in, I guess, the golden era, the industrial age. I I think that it's always been a problem. It's not a new problem. It's always been a problem, and particularly now that you have, um, essentially, you're carrying an infinite, powerful computer in your pocket. Um, or in your bra strap, depending upon where you carry it, <laughs> you, you are um, prone to take the easy way out. Um, and, and quite honestly, if I want to you know, fix something, I'll Google it, find a YouTube video, watch the video and do it. Um, could I learn it on my own? Sure, I could. Could I figure it out? Sure, I could. But why should I? It's right, the solution's right there. Mm. But the problem is, is that then, then things that you could have done maybe something you could have fixed something. Um, you go, well, it's just easier to do with a video. And so you start relying on that. And that's when you have problems. Once you start relying on the technology to, to basically stand for you and your brain and what you're doing, yes, your brain's going to go into a state of kind of disuse in some sense. Um, and I, I, you know, there's not, not a lot of data on this, but I think over time, um, we know that over time, your attention span has decreased enormously. Um, that's technologically driven. Um, we knew, know that your memory um, has disappeared a lot because you can always Google it. Um, we are constantly asking, who's that star going out with? And, and it's like, we must have looked 10 times on the same person because when you get the answer, in your brain, your brain needs, if you're going to remember it, your brain needs to process it. If it doesn't process it, it doesn't remember it. It goes in and out. Mm. So that's what's happening more and more is that our brains are getting used to not processing stuff deeply enough that we can remember it and just ejecting it um, and knowing that we can find it the next time. It's called the Google effect, by the way. Google effect. Really, there really is a Google effect. Yeah, it's like with directions, like you don't know where to drive anymore because you're mapping everything, even places you know because you're trying to look out for traffic or whatever. 
Um, do you think that this overload, like the 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 new um, what is it called, endless swipe, just very intense media that really doesn't have any meaning. Do you think all that data is going in your brain and getting rid of useful data? Because it's it's going in, and you're. Yeah, I, don't, you're I don't think you're processing it long enough to make it any difference. You think it's just trashing it? It's like a flick. It's like flit across your brain. Our brains are really good at remembering things, but we have to process them. We have to spend we have to spend time getting our neurons to process it over and over. Which, by the way, that also happens during our sleep. That stuff that happened during the day, our brain processes the stuff we want to keep and throws out the stuff we don't want. It's called pruning. Mm. And pruning is throwing out the stuff we don't want. Consolidation is the stuff of what happens in the middle of the night. If you're getting a lousy night's sleep, of course, that doesn't happen. And so stuff that you studied right up to bedtime might be gone by the time you get up in the morning. I don't think... (sighs) There's a great book written a long time ago by Thomas Kuhn called The Paradigm Shift. And what it does is basically set up the idea that that we're in these paradigms and at some point something happens and we make a shift somewhere else to a different paradigm or an abstraction of that paradigm. And I think that this is where we are right now, that we're, we're at the point where we're certainly in an overload, um, overuse, carry your phone paradigm. And then the question becomes, what's next? Uh, I'm not a futurist. I can't predict things very well. When I try, I fall down my face. But I would guess that the next shift is going to have to be something like implanting stuff. That the next the next kind of generation going to be driven by biological stuff, by things that tap your brain. And we already see some of that, the 23andMe kind of things. Those are biological, um, very popular ancestry, very biological. Um, We see that, I mean, there's more and more biological information out there about us. And I think that's where things are going to start shifting to. And I think one one of the problems is what you said is that we're, we're not going to be able to have the time to process things. Mm. And, and the, uh, the downside, of course, of that is we don't remember them without processing them again. The good news is when you pr- start to process something again that you've had before, if it got down a little bit, it kind of reignites that area and helps you. You don't have to do it from scratch. You just kind of build it up and build it up again. Same thing with distraction. I mean, your brain... The brain's funny with distraction. When your brain's like, if I'm thinking about something right now, my brain we can look at it as if my brain is activated and the neurons are flaring out there. And but then if I get distracted, oh, oh wait, wait, something over there, the blood that's there in energizing the neurons with glucose and oxygen now starts to shift to a new idea, maybe over here, and this one goes down, and this one goes up, but this goes down slowly so that we get back to it, say within 15, 20 minutes, it's not gone. It's just that we have to re-energize it and we re-energize it not from scratch, but from what, what little memory we did process. Yeah. Distractions. I mean, we're living in a world of distraction right now. Yeah. I just, my, my phone, by the way, just beeped and on my screen, it tells me notifications that I get. <laughs> oh no. And it just told me that 
in 30 minutes, I have to walk across the street to get my haircut. Okay. Yeah. We're, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this up, Dr. Rosen. We appreciate um, the time. It's been a fascinating conversation and we enjoy the work that you, you do and that you're, um, that you did and you're continuing to do. If there's one golden rule that you tell your family about technology and mental health or psychology, what's, what's that thing that you can share with people? Um, make sure that you're controlling the technology and the technology is not controlling you. I think too often we let the technology control us and we make the mistake of checking in too often. And then we, turn, we leave notifications on for everything. I always tell people, turn off all your notifications. What do you care if somebody just posted something on TikTok. What do you care? You're going to look at TikTok in 20 minutes anyway, next time you open your phone. So yes, let you control the technology. Don't let the technology control you. And I think if we start working on that, we've got a chance. Agreed. Well, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Rosen. You have a good day and uh, we'll let you know when this, uh, this bad boy comes out. <laughs> nice to chat with you guys. Nice. You have a good day. Enjoy your haircut. Yep. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye. Ha <laughs> ha